chapter 9, verse 10, he says that the old regulations for worship were never intended to be anything more than temporary. In verse 24 of chapter 9, he says that the Jewish holy place, again, is just a copy, not the original. In chapter 10, he uses the word shadow again to describe the Jewish religious law. The people to whom he was writing thought that a little compromise wouldn't hurt anything. Our author tells them they couldn't be more mistaken. And when we get into chapter 10, we're going to see that in great, greater detail. So let's look at our passage, chapter 9, verses 23 through 28. <clears throat> Let me read that for us. It'll be up here on the screen as well. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary. It was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that's not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Look at verse 23 again. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. There's that word copies again. The Jewish holy place, its furniture, its rituals were all copied from an original, which is heaven. And that's where Christ is even now. Verse 24, for Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary. There's that handmade word that we saw a few weeks ago that was only a copy of the true one. No, he entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. The word translated as appear, and keep that word in mind, it's an important one in this passage. The word translated as appear occurs most often in Scripture in a courtroom setting. We use it the same way. He appeared before the judge. But here it's used not of the courtroom, but of the sanctuary, the worship ritual. It's not the defendant who appears, but the high priest. And yet the idea of judgment is not far away. Verse 27, a man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. I don't think that's a coincidence that judgment and sacrifice appear within a few verses of each other in this passage. The idea of judgment is never entirely absent when a sacrifice is being offered. <clears throat> There's a good example of this in Romans chapter 8, verse 3, but you see it everywhere in Scripture. In Romans 8, 3, God sent his son to be a sin offering, that's sacrifice. And in so doing, he condemned sin. That's judgment. A sacrificial offering is an act of worship and an act of judgment. See, when you get far enough in, the walls begin to break down. In God's presence, the courtroom becomes indistinguishable from the sanctuary, and the distance between the defendant and the worshiper all but disappears. What seem 
like separate and even contrary things to us at first, turns out to be two ways of looking at the same thing. Now, we see examples of this in nature all the time. Ice and steam. They seem like very different things, but are both just H2O as it appears in different contexts. I suspect something similar is true of worship and judgment. Those who are awed and drawn to God will see Christ their high priest and will worship at the foot of the throne as the elect. Those who hate God will see Christ their judge and will cringe at the judgment seat as reprobates. But they both stand in the presence of the same holy God. Yet the results are as different as ice and steam. For years I've read books on theoretical physics, layman's books on theoretical physics. And because I'm interested in the great quest, the great quest of theoretical theoretical physics since the 1970s has been the grand unified theory. Scientists believe at some level the four forces of nature, the strong and weak nuclear forces, electromagnetism, and gravity can be unified. That is, they believe that the four forces will turn out to be expressions of a single force, and they're searching for a mathematical theory that will prove it. In theology, there's something like that. There's something like a grand unified theory. Theologians believe that the justice of God and his mercy, his kindness and his anger, his judgment and his blessing are all the same thing. Love. Looked at from different perspectives or in different degrees of his power. So it is here. The sanctuary of verse 24 and the judgment hall of verse 27 turn out to be the same place seen through the eyes of different people. We see a similar phenomenon at work in the cross. It's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. Now, look at verse 24 again. It says that the man-made sanctuary was only a copy of the true one. Some scholars recommend the word model here rather than copy. When the Jewish high priest went through the holy place and entered into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, he was entering a model of the heavenly sanctuary. The actions he carried out there were a working model to anticipate the actions of the heavenly high priest, the resurrected Jesus. When the high priest stood in the earthly sanctuary on the great Day of Atonement and presented his offering, probably with fear and trembling, a connection was made to the sacrifice of the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Oh, when you get further in, mystery upon mystery, and the glory of God is everywhere. As that high priest stood on earth, he touched heaven. Those who offered the sacrifice in faith were forgiven, not on the basis of an animal sacrifice made by an earthly high priest. That was just the shadow but on the basis of the self-offering of the great high priest who cast the shadow. That's Orthodox Christian teaching. So St. Paul writes, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement, a propitiation through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. 
He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. This is the kind of thing Paul and Barnabas told the worshipers of Pisidian and Antioch. Through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you couldn't be justified from by the law of Moses. The law of Moses couldn't justify people. The sacrifice didn't do it. But by faith, people connected to the one who did. In much the same way as the sacrifice offered in the Holy of Holies on earth touched Christ's sacrifice and was taken up into it in heaven, and the link between these two dimensions, for lack of a better word, is faith. So our worship here touches the worship that goes on in heaven and is taken up into it when we worship in faith. Faith is the link between heaven and earth. And the mark of the justified. When we take the Lord's Supper in a few minutes, those of us who do so in faith will connect to Christ himself. We take our place in the upper room with the apostles. We join the prophets and white-robed martyrs. We join the saints across the world and across the ages as we eat the bread and drink the cup. Faith is the bridge that spans time and space. As surely as our Lord said to the apostles, this is my blood of the new covenant, all of you drink it. He says it to us. But if you eat the bread and drink the cup without faith, they cease to be an affirmation of the new covenant between you and God, and the Lord's table becomes just a communion table. If you go through the motions without faith, that is, if you eat the bread and drink the Lord's cup, in an unworthy manner, then communion itself is just another religious ritual, what our author called back in verse 14, a dead work. Under the old covenant, remember that's the working model, the high priest offered a sacrifice in the most holy place every year on the day of atonement. Not so Christ. He, verse 25, did not enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with a blood that's not his own. Our author wants to make sure his readers get this. There's not a one-to-one correspondence between the earthly tabernacle and the heavenly one. Nor is there a one-to-one correspondence between the actions of the earthly high priest and his heavenly counterpart. He doesn't want us to misunderstand. The earthly sanctuary and its priestly staff was a model, not the reality. A working model, like an engineering model, or even a model train, runs through the same actions again and again and again. So in the earthly tabernacle, the high priest ran through the same actions as he offered the sacrifice for sin, again and again and again. It's like the model train going round and round the track. That's the way a model works. It goes through the same things over and over again. Our author doesn't want us to forget that the tabernacle, the high priest, the offerings were just a copy, a model, a working model. He makes that point again and again. Chapter 8, verse 5. Chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. Chapter 10, verse 1. There is not an exact correspondence between the model and the reality. Otherwise, verse 26, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. The reality is more than the model. The model train goes round and round, but never, like the real train, arrives. So with the tabernacle and its rituals, they went round and round, year after year, but never arrived. 
That's the point of chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. The same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year can never make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? The fact that these offerings were repeated again and again, year after year, actually made them, verse 3, an annual reminder of sins, since it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The tabernacle with its rites and sacrifices was a model. And like the model train, it never arrived. Not because it was flawed. St. Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 7. Not because it was flawed, but because it was a model. But Christ did arrive, verse 26. But now he's appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Scholars argue about whether the word translated here is do away with, it's just one word in Greek, retains its classical meaning of annul. When you find the word both in Ionic Greek and elsewhere, it has this very legal sense of annulling some former regulation. So they argue whether it means that here or if it has taken on the sense of remove, as in remove or deal with sin. If the former annul, then this verse carries us back into the courtroom and it's about judgment. If the latter, then this verse carries us into the sanctuary and it's about worship through sacrifice. But see, in the presence of the holy and awesome God, those differences dissolve. Yes, the law of sin is annulled and yes, the guilt of sin is dealt with and removed. So is it worship ritual or is it legal proceeding? And the answer is it's both And it's more than both. It's grace. Look at verse 27. Just as man is destined to die once. Let's pause it for just a second. Sometimes the papers and and news reports talk about the death rate. But have you ever noticed how they always do so within very specific parameters? So, for example... The news might say the death rate is rising among 18 to 35-year-old black males in Philadelphia. There are all those parameters. That's because if you remove the parameters, the death rate doesn't rise. It can't rise. It's always 100%. Man is destined to die once. And after that, to face judgment. Now, verse 28. By the way, most often when I've heard preachers take this verse, they always use it to to focus on us. The author of Hebrews is focusing on Jesus. So Christ was sacrificed. Man is destined to die once and to face judgment. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin. He's already done that but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. That word waiting, by the way, always has the sense of being eager and waiting. People die once. By the way, that's the same word that's translated as once for all in verse 26. People die once because of their sins. Christ died once for all to take away their sins. He came, our author says, to bear sin, but he'll come back to bring salvation to those who are waiting for it. How well does that describe you? Are you waiting for him? 
The differences between his first and second coming are vast. His first coming was hidden in a virgin's womb. His second coming, everyone will see as he lights up the sky. When he came the first time, it was as a helpless and dependent baby. When he comes again, it will be as king of kings and lord of lords. When he came the first time, he was judged. When he comes the second time, he is judge. In the NIV, the word appear is used three times in verses 24 through 28. It's actually three different Greek words, although two of them are very closely related. But they all do have the same sense, and the NIV does well in translating them that way. These three uses of the word appear outline our Lord's work, past, present, future. He has appeared, that's verse 26, to put away sin. That's past. He did so by dying on the cross. He is now appearing in heaven for us. Verse 24, that's present. That's right now. And one day, perhaps soon, he will appear to bring salvation. Verse 28, to rescue us and to liberate creation. That's future. These are the three tenses of salvation the Bible uses. He saved us. He's saving us. He will save us. He saved us. See, that calls for faith. Have you trusted in him on the basis of what he's done in the past? He is saving us. That calls for love. Are you living for him in the present? And he will save us. That calls for hope. Are you waiting for him right now? Now let's pray. Lord, the further in we get, the more the walls break down. And we pass through mystery after mystery. And find their love. So God, take us further up and further in. Cause us to hear the song of saints on higher ground. And implant in our heart a desire to join them in your presence. And even as we come to the table this morning, bring us higher up and further in, right to your presence. Not because we merit anything, because of your love for our great, glorious high priest, whom we love as well. It's in his name, the good name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.
Let's stand together. Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or cleanse its stain. Then Christ appears, the Son of God bestows God's mercy to all men. But Christ the heavenly Lamb takes all our sin away, a sacrifice of nobler name his blood displays before God's throne. The Christ appears presenting full atonement there. Believing we rejoice to see the curse removed. We bless the Lamb with cheerful voice and sing His love. He shall return to bring salvation to those who so wait for Him. You may be seated. Here at uh, Lockwood Community Church, we celebrate and remember the Lord's death until he comes. We do this on the first Sunday of each month, and we understand that there are always those who are among us who are perhaps visiting.